I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Your team, welcome to Wikipedia. My name is Mickey, and this week on the show, I am stoked to bring to you this conversation that I had to my mates. A Wikipedia regular, Dr. Cliff Harvey, and returning guest, Dr. Eric Helms. So, Cliff, Eric, and I sat down and had just a good old conversation about topics related to body composition, muscle mass, cutting for a physique show, where people might get it wrong with macros. And just some real practical sort of take-home tips for anyone that is interested in the whole body composition macronutrient counting space. We were really just chewing the fat on all things related. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation because it really was my opportunity to sort of pick the brains of two of the experts in the field who are so good at giving us really practical information. So for those of you who haven't caught up with any of Cliff or Eric's episodes, we will pop them in the show notes for today. But Cliff Harvey, he's New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet and a healthy population. And he's been helping people live healthier, happier lives and to perform better since starting in clinical practice way back in the 1990s. That was like last century, people. So he has worked with Olympic, professional, Commonwealth and other high-performing athletes in addition to just your everyday sort of people and he's also worked with many people to overcome the effects of chronic and debilitating health conditions. So he has over 20 years experience as a strength and nutrition coach and in addition to his PhD research is a registered clinical nutritionist, qualified naturopath and he, he's the owner of an education provider, Holistic Performance Institute, which is New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching and performance. And it's one that I actually teach on and we're just finalising the female athlete module to go out, hopefully by mid-year 2022. And Dr. Eric Helms is a coach, athlete, author educator and podcast host. He's a trainer since the early 2000s, worked in the US Air Force, commercial gyms, private training studios, medical fitness and strength and conditioning facilities, and he is part of 3DMJ, where they coach drug-free strength and physique competitors at all levels. Eric himself has competed since the mid-2000s in natural bodybuilding, and he's also dabbled in powerlifting and Olympic lifting. Eric is also a multiple published peer-reviewed author in exercise science and nutrition journals and writes for commercial fitness publication. He's taught at undergraduate and graduate level nutrition and exercise science courses, including Holistic Performance Institute with Cliff. And he is the co-host of Iron Culture, an awesome podcast which delves into all topics strength condition related. So he is also the co-founder of Mass Monthly Strength and Conditioning Review and I subscribe to that, I absolutely love it, and is a research fellow for AUT at the Sports Performance Research Institute New Zealand. He's a guy with a lot of letters after his name. So we will of course put links to how to find Eric and Cliff in the show notes. Before we get on into the interview, I'd just like to remind you that the best way for you to support us team is to hit subscribe 
and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. That would be amazing. And if you do want to go the extra mile, you can sign up to any one of my real food nutrition plans, my recipe portal access, or one of my um, fat loss plans over on mickeywillardin.com, where you not only get access to all my recipes, the ability for me to answer your nutrition-related questions, at any time, our written Q&A that happens weekly, my weekly email, and depending on what you sign up to, a monthly meal plan with shopping lists. And finally, just before we go, Monday's Matter is going to kick off again early May. Prior to that though, I do have a free webinar entitled If Not Fasting Then What, where I talk all about the strategies I use in Monday's Matter that are successful in helping people achieve their desired body composition and sort of lose the hunger and gain control over their food intake in a delicious way. So um, we'll put links to that in the show notes too. All right, team, enough from me. Let's hear from Dr. Cliff Harvey and Dr. Eric Helms. All right, team, we're on. Uh, Dr. Helms, Dr. Harvey, got to say thank you first for taking the time to jump back on Wikipedia. Cliff is a Wikipedia regular and one of the most popular guests. Not that I'm putting, I'm sort of positing that as some sort of competition, mm. Eric, but I did. That's going on I backwards now, Dr. Willardin. <laughs> yeah, I did actually quite like the way that I put you both on my um, little Instagram post. And it almost looked, it reminded me of some WWF show sort of announcement before, but. You mean the World Wildlife Federation? World Wildlife Federation. Yeah, because it's just the hairiness of. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You look like a worldwide fan yeah. for nature poster. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who are these animals? Um, so anyway, like you guys are, I said you go, you're the OG in this whole space of macros, of physique, of weight loss. What thing, where things go right, where things go wrong. Well, it's it's true because Eric invented macros and I invented physique. Yeah. <laughs> people didn't have physiques and before. People I couldn't came build right. them before macros existed. So. <laughs> <laughs> This protein has no protein in it because I don't know what macro is. <laughs> and people are always super interested to um, to hear you guys talk about it. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to to let them, but also for us just to have a conversation. I just got off the call from another um, academic who's currently based in Brazil. And she, after our conversation, she was like, that was so great because all I love doing is sitting in a pub on a Saturday night and talking about research and I'm like don't we all but actually we don't it's just geeks like us so I'm glad you're up for it (laughs) 100% always well the last time we did a podcast and we agreed to have a beer I think I was only I was the only one having a beer (laughs) (laughs) that is true what is your beverage of choice this morning men I don't think it will be beer at this time of the morning I'm I'm going with that yeah I I had coffee but currently I have Nothing in front of me because the coffee is now now drunk. I have had a lot of beverages this morning, though. I had a, a coffee like Eric, but I had lion's mane in that coffee and collagen. I then had a shake containing uh, whey protein, exogenous ketones, MCTs, super starch, berries, and oat milk. Wow. You really sound like a biohacker. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I invented biohacking. I think you, you'll find. 
that sounds um like a delicious mix i've got um in front of me the coffee i've got a shake and i've also got toast with cottage cheese i quite like cottage cheese quite like toast. Wow. it's my my friday use this is like spoken instagram <laughs> <laughs> us sharing parts of our lives that no one cares about but without the visual media yeah. i love it okay so i'm gonna start with one of my first questions uh that came through the dm Team, what is hot off the press with regards to our understanding of physique, science, or whatever we want to call it? So what's new? What's relevant? What is something which, you know, is um, of interest right now? Well, I, um, there was a, a recent paper. I mean, if we're talking like, like when, when I hear physique science, I think like physique sport, which uh, mm. probably isn't an interest of most people, but they're probably interested in like body composition change, but um, there's an interesting study that we're reviewing in mass uh, that's coming out next month on uh, whether or not competitive bodybuilders can manipulate their intra to extracellular water ratio with some of their peak week protocols, or traditionally you'll see them uh, loading carbs, um, loading potassium, cutting sodium, cutting water, doing a pump up, um, and some or not all of those factors together, depending on who you talk to. Um, and uh, it's an interesting study because they reported the highest intra to extracellular water ratios that are present in any literature um, in, on PubMed. Um, and I found that quite interesting. And then I, as I dug into the methods, I found out that they used single frequency BIA, which and used estimations equations. Mm. So there's some real big limitations as far as your ability to estimate total body water. So I'm reasonably convinced that the directionality exists, but the magnitudes and the exact numbers, when you look at the math, looks a little funky. But uh, mm. anyway, it's just a, it's a question that, so if you were to hang out with a bunch of bodybuilders, you're going to get people who lean more towards traditional uh, wisdom, and you're going to lean more people toward more people who were maybe have a, a more evidence-based bias. And I say bias, not just preference, because there's so little evidence on this at all. So it's, I think it's understandable, whichever way someone leans. Uh, but like the science based response to someone going, hey, I do this peaking protocol so I can, you know, reduce my my uh, my, my extracellular water, in, increase my extracellular water so I have less sub subcutaneous, uh, you know, fluid, you know, blurring my definition and I've got all, all in the muscle cells. They go, well, you know, Intra to extracellular water ratios are highly and tightly monitored, regulated body. And if you could manipulate them a lot, it'd be bad. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm sus suspicious of that claim, and I don't think you can really do what you think you're doing. Um, mm. And that's I've definitely been someone who's who's erred on 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 kind of that side of the response. But this this paper is at least making me go, hmm, interesting. I would like to see this replicated with um, perhaps more rigorous methods, say multi frequency bioedance spectroscopy as well as maybe some uh, additional hydration monitoring methods because I think this is unfortunately the, the methods really leave a lot to be desired in this study but um, but it's intriguing so that's something that just popped off the top of my head. Eric can I ask you a 101 question? Yes. So in peak week and I've actually I, I see this like I'm not a physique competitor or anything like that but I've always been interested in the sport and, and seeing what people do and I've always been really confused about the method of, of the sort of hydration loading what you mm. do with sodium I know that 
and, and what you do with carbs in that sort of couple of days leading up or week leading up. What is your protocol? And what do you do? Yeah. So the traditional idea is that uh, when you ingest carbohydrate, it gets stored as muscle glycogen and liver glycogen. Um, and every gram of, of, of glycogen is stored with three-ish to four-ish grams of water that are bound with glycogen. And the idea is that when you do that and you carb load and you supersaturate uh, muscle glycogen, you will have a visual change. So it's the same idea behind carbohydrate loading that endurance athletes use, but it's not for the purpose of increasing you know, metabolic substrates for high-intensity exercise. It is specifically to enhance appearance. And that is done often uh, in conjunction with a controlled or restricted water intake. The idea is that uh, the water must be bound with glycogen. And by the way, I'm presenting the argument, not necessarily that I agree with all aspects of it, and I'll tell you what I think makes sense and what I do. Um, you restrict water, load carbs, therefore the body has to, quote-unquote, pull water from other places, extracellular, mm. subcutaneous, to be stored with the, uh, the, the carbs and muscle. And therefore, you're going to see an enhanced appearance and increase in definition because you're getting less water in the subcutaneous space, more inside the muscle. And then you combine this with loading potassium or eating potassium-rich foods, reducing sodium to try to uh, enhance this effect of intracellular to extracellular water ratio increasing by trying to get the sodium-potassium pump leveraged. Um, and you will even see on the untested side of the sport people taking prescription diuretics along with mm. this. Uh, insulin. So getting rid of as much fluid as possible. Except that, that, which supposedly is bound with, with muscle glycogen, so that you just have this, this dry but very hard and separated look. Um, and I can tell you from my, geez, this is going to make me sound old now, uh, 15 years in the sport, that like 80% of the time, people will say they do this and they, and they don't look better or they look sometimes look worse. It seems very inconsistent especially at the amateur level. Um, and one thing I have pretty much consistently seen is that when people mess a lot with their electrolytes, um, they just don't look right. And I think some of the assumptions that are baked into this don't make sense. Like intracellular is not necessarily perfectly synonymous in all situations as intramuscular. Um, and extracellular is certainly not synonymous with subcutaneous. Mm. Um, as an example of some things that you probably wouldn't want to change in the way that are suggested, uh, your vascular system is extracellular. So by reducing sodium, and by the way, we all know what happens when you're really dieted and you are low energy availability and very low in body fat, you typically see very low blood pressure. And it's, mm. you know, you stand up while you're dieting sometimes and you get a little lightheaded. That's exacerbated when you've been dieting for like six months to 4% body fat for a meal or something like that. Uh, it's very difficult to get a pump. So you can imagine that trying to get a pump when you're cutting sodium and, and restricting water intake, it doesn't really happen. And there's a lot of people who are really struggling to get that effect. So you probably wouldn't want to limit the blood, blood supply to muscles as a way to enhance their, their hardness and separation. Um, Another interesting thing is that the, the GLUT4 transporter in the gut or carbohydrate is sodium dependent. So I sometimes do wonder if people who experience bloating and don't seem to fill out that well, it's because they're severely restricting sodium while trying to load carbohydrates. Um, so I think sometimes people just do a whole too much 
and they can't separate all the variables they've changed in the final week from what is doing what and what isn't doing what. Um, so generally, I lean on the things that really do make sense and have the highest potential uh, cost, or I should say benefit to cost ratio. Um, so some interesting things. The an, Another assumption, and this is taking far too long to talk about a very niche sports protocol, but I'll try to be quick. The idea that there's always three to four grams of water bound with glycogen, that's kind of a minimum. There's actually been some research in uh, carb loading endurance athletes where they do it in a hypohydrated state or a hyperhydrated state. And you can actually see upwards of something like 18 to 19 grams uh, being stored in, in the muscle, not necessarily glycogen bound. And how that affects appearance, I don't know. Those are limitations. But you can actually have a very well hydrated muscle if you are well hydrated and also carb loading to a greater extent mm. than if you were not carb loading and were well, well, well hydrated, or if you were carb loading or were dehydrated. So, um, and that comes back to that whole intramuscular versus uh, intracellular idea. Like if, if uh, Cliff, you might have noticed this, let's say that the day after an upper body workout, you're a little sore. I tend to look a little more muscular, um, whether that's edema uh, and, and hydration, but I'm pretty sure that is intramuscular, but not intracellular. What I'm seeing the day after I was to do like a high volume upper body workout, I look good for like 24 hours. Um, and I would suspect that is related to some soreness and swelling post-workout. It makes me look better, um, but is like just an example of the, the lack of equality between intramuscular and intracellular in some cases. And so anyway. Um, I typically don't restrict sodium at all. If anything, sometimes I'll increase it to try to see if I can get a little bump in blood pressure. I typically mm -hmm. do carbohydrate loading as that is, mm -hmm. I think it, it does make sense and there's nothing that really doesn't make sense about it. And we actually do have some quasi experimental data showing it enhances appearance. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a study by Dame Rays, I'm probably mispronouncing that. I think last year or the year before that came out this is a cool study design. They grouped these bodybuilders into whether or not they use carb loading or not. This is quasi-experimental, so they weren't intervening, but they separated them observationally on those who did or didn't. And they used their photo silhouettes um, and gave those to judges, so they couldn't identify who the competitor was, but they were able to compare whether or not they looked more muscular from the photo silhouettes, and they rated the carb-loaded group as having improved their appearance more. Um, and then they also did uh, things like uh, circumference measurements, muscle thickness, which seemed to improve in that carb-loaded state. So carb loading probably works, uh, is it, and, and it, uh, I've always anecdotally noticed it has. But I have seen effects of, and we know this, you know, muscle is a, a huge part of it is water. So being dehydrated, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good idea to be low in sodium. So generally what I do is more or less just carb load, and sometimes I'll bump sodium a little bit and then maintain uh, a normal to higher water throughput. Because I don't really see an issue with drinking a lot of water because you just pee mm -hmm. more. You know. Mm. So anyway, that's generally what I do, and it's something I will also test sometime in the, the eight weeks out or earlier mark to make sure that it actually uh, plays out that way. And the final caveat I'll yeah. say is that I work with drug-free bodybuilders. It is very possible that this is a different equation and that this is a tradition passed down for good reason from the enhanced side of the sport, where they could be taking very androgenic drugs and yes. seeing a lot of hormone-mediated water retention, where they do actually improve their appearance uh, from cutting water in the show. Ah, that's a really good distinction, actually. Thanks, Eric. Like, I've always at, 
been interested to understand that process a little bit more and you actually gave me a perfect opportunity to um uh to figure that out or find that out cliff how about you anything new and interesting in the physique science space whatever you call it and of course i know eric goes to the actual what it actually is you know science of bodybuilding whereas i'm just more talking about body recomposition weight loss anything like that yeah i i I think broadly that the more we learn it's almost as if we we kind of understand that it's not that complicated whereas back in the day we might have thought there were all these fine things we could adjust that would have really big effects i think the more we're studying this the more we realize that those small changes might result in very small effects for some people but overall there are some really big fish to fry and that's what we should focus on and so i think that's what the research is showing more and more so i would say it's more about a a sort of broad overview and what it's telling us in general which in many respects simplifies the the game for people um and by the game i don't mean the game of physique sport necessarily but you know the, the game of body composition recomposition all that kind of stuff um so i i kind of think that a lot of what we know about body composition has been known in general terms for a long time. Mm. You know, if you if you read works by people back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, a lot of it was pretty congruent with what we would know now about modern sort of bodybuilding or body composition science. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the big rocks have been in place for a long time. And there's somewhat of a uh, kind of an evidence-based meme versus the bro science meme. And I think... Uh, people have expectations because the evidence-based kind of community has all these ideas that are all potential like trivial effect sizes combined to get one small effect size. And then they do all of that, and then they see their buddy maybe has better genetics than that, making better gains, not paying attention to those variables. And they think they're doing nothing that's evidence-based, but in reality, they are not doing the things that are currently popular in the evidence-based community, but all the most important mm. evidence-based things they are doing. Like, it's not like the quote-unquote bro science people or people who are more traditionalist are going, you know what? I don't want to see any progressive overload. I want to see your training get easier over time. I need you to do less sets or reps or load or get further from failure week to week. And let's avoid all of those exercises that train your muscle groups. We'll just do strange ones that do nothing. And let's get that protein <laughs> intake down below one gram per kg. And uh, when you want to cut, be in a surplus. When you want to be in a deficit, that's when you're trying to gain muscle. Like, that's not what bro scientists are doing. You know, they're generally following a progressive hard training protocol uh, with a high protein diet, eating in a surplus when they're trying to put on muscle, eating in a deficit when they're not. So they've got everything that really matters in place. You could argue they could train each muscle group a little more frequently, but we know that's a very small impact and really just a vehicle for volume distribution. Uh, we know maybe they shouldn't always be training to failure, but the data would suggest that you can get away with, you know, training to failure. And it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of idiot-proofing the program at the very least. You know that you're, you're putting forth a, a sufficient stimulus. It might not be the most efficient thing in the world. Um, a lot of what I think Cliff was getting at is that Understanding some of the things that you do and don't have to do can make your life a little less stressful. Maybe you can reduce the you know disordered eating patterns you have, or maybe the masochistic relationship you have with your your body in the gym, and maybe you'll be more sustainable in the sport, more efficient with your time. But 
it's I think a lot of what quote unquote bro science is is thinking that you know what every day I pray to the sun and it comes up probably got to keep praying to the sun you know but it's not like they are it's it's not harmful it's just it maybe a, a narrative that is incorrect and some things that are less efficient or unnecessary but typically not actively harmful if you're especially looking at the kind of tradition-based anecdotal bodybuilding or physique stuff where people are paying attention and doing what seems to work in the trenches they often get the directionality right but maybe the magnitude's off like yeah we eat three and a half grams per kg of protein it's like well you could do 2.5 and probably be just as good but you got the whole higher protein than the you know rda recommendation down right yeah yeah and there is you know inter-individual variability so who knows someone might benefit from three or four grams protein per kilo body weight and someone else 1.4 you know it's um that that's one thing i think that's that's often missed by the evidence-based community is that what we're, you know it's, it's always regression to the mean you know what works best for people is assumed to work best for a person and as practitioners we know that well there's not that much variability because people are people right Homo sapiens are homo sapiens, but there can be some pretty interesting differences between people, particularly in terms of macro splits or, you know, maybe training volume. Um, And and that's all impacted, obviously, by not just physiology, but the psychosocial milieu. So there's a a lot of variability there. And I kind of take the position where we we need to obviously look at the evidence. That's clear. We need to be evidence-based. And we should probably have as our benchmark what the evidence tells us in terms of those sort of population norms. However, for an individual, we need to move from that very rapidly as required because it may not work well for that person. And like I say, it could, could be for a range of reasons and not just the physiological. Mm. At least in the bodybuilding world, I think that the, that's an issue that's not just on the evidence-based side. The traditionalists generally go, who's the biggest, like what is Mr. Olympia doing right now? Or what is the most popular coach doing right now? And it is often what worked well for mm. them or some of their elite level clients. And then every, everyone simply mirrors the elite, um, which when you actually think about it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there's only one Mr. Olympia and there's thousands of skinny teenage kids training like that who aren't getting great gains. So does that even make sense? Probably not. Um, and I would say that anyone who is actually an evidence-based practitioner is, by definition, focusing on individual differences, because that is one of the three-legged aspects of the stool. But I would say that the people who have kind of, they're really just kind of like pseudoscience interested, or, or let's say we'll call them hardcore empiricists who are actually quite naive to individual differences, and they assume that the means that are reported in the research are, are the, the most common response or the response that an individual would suspect. They're not evidence-based. They're um, probably just focusing too much on on science and misapplying it while the mm. actual evidence-based approach is counting for individual differences and preferences as well as experience and having a scientific-based approach. So that's actually something that I do think is coming out more and more in research is that while we are starting to understand exactly like Cliff said that we kind of have the big rocks understood and have for a while, um, the more we can have open science and reporting the individual participant-level data uh, and the more that we can try to manipulate these things and use cool study designs to like crossovers or my favorite within subject designs where like one leg is doing one thing and another leg is doing the other. So you've controlled for 
the uh, the genetic differences and the environmental differences of the person, then you see some really cool shit. Like just to just to throw a mm. a little uh, you know uh, cool finding out there. There's a, a recent study by Damas and colleagues that came out where they uh, reanalyzed the data they had from another study, and every person was uh, randomized into having one of their legs trained two to three times per week doing a total of six to nine sets of leg extensions and leg press to failure, if I recall correctly. Or the other leg was trained for 15 total sets, five times a week. So you're looking within person at using a moderate to low volume versus roughly twice that on average, a high, higher volume approach. And within the same person, sometimes you would see that they were getting two to threefold the gains in either strength or hypertrophy, which didn't always go the same way for a person. I mean, they might have done better with higher volume for, for strength and lower volume for hypertrophy or vice versa versus the other leg. Meaning that while we might generally advise, hey, why don't you start your lifting career with, say, you know, eight to 12 sets per muscle group, that might be really insufficient for some on an individual level basis. And it might be, you know, really perfect for someone else, or it may not nearly be enough or too much. Uh, and while the the means are actually quite different, I mean, sorry, quite quite subtly different and often non significant when you compare moderate to high volumes. Um, when you then look at the individuals, sometimes you can see people who it is a completely different experience for them, as as far as being, oh, I'm a non responder or a low responder versus I'm a high responder. And I'm not saying that. If, if I just found the right program, I would be Ronnie Coleman. Um, but what I am saying is that someone who has been making inconsistent progress might be kind of the best version of themselves. While, you know, the people who are genetic freaks are going to make either amazingly pro progress or even amazingly better progress for them. So, of course, the, the biggest factor is going to be someone's individual genetics. But um, whether or not you can reach your potential does seem heavily dependent on individual factors. And I think that's becoming something that's more and more mm. studied. Uh, and just by the nature of the open science movement, we can get actual access to that and researchers can leverage that and report individual participant level data. And I think that's, while it's not a finding, Mickey, I think it's probably the next horizon for a really interesting um, data collection and yeah, I think the first step is just identifying that there's these massive individual differences that practitioners already mm. know about, but quantifying it and then hopefully developing protocols which can prospectively identify people so we can better guide uh, the, the guidance we give instead of having to go through a, a lengthy trial and error process or as lengthy. So, Eric, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Within bounds, do you think it really makes that much difference? For let's say, you know, most people most of the time, if they're changing their, let's say, volume and or frequency, even quite considerably, like, you know, let's say you take someone who's training a la, you know, Mark Chaylet twice a week, just a few sets warming up to basically a heavy max versus someone training like, I don't know, Bill Pearl, you know, do, do you think if they're applying progressive overload and they're consistent with that and let's say ceteris paribus applies all other things are remaining equal in terms of lifestyle and nutrition do you think over the long term there would really be that much yes, difference absolutely yeah. and I, th I think while these these you know eight week studies that i'm uh, referring to by demas doesn't uh indicate that there are other studies um uh, like there's one by scarpelli and colleagues which i just recently got to see the individual data from 
But what they did, similar study design, um, and they had one leg assigned to 20% more sets than the person was historically doing. So they interviewed all the participants to be like, hey, what are you currently doing? And like, oh, I'm doing, you know, 20 sets per week. Okay, you're going to go up to 24. And then the other group just did a standardized 22 sets. So the individualized group made about one third more progress at the group level. And I thought that was cool. And it goes, okay, individualization is better. If we're going to make a volume bump, we shouldn't just arbitrarily go to 22 sets, which is more than the group mean. But it's actually a reduction for some people or the same to what you are doing for others. But if we make an individualized increase, we get better results. But that pales in comparison to when you look at the individual uh, participant data, where sometimes you'll see someone who went to 22 sets and their increase in cross-sectional areas like 0.3%. But then you find that they were actually doing 12. When they go to 14 sets, it's 14%. So, you know, this study is making people look like that guy in Lady in the Water, you know, has one jacked arm in my Shyamalan movie. This may not be a reference that makes any sense, but he only trains one arm. <laughs> but anyway, there's, there was a few, maybe a third of the participants who you were seeing six to seven fold differences in the one leg versus the other. And uh, that, in combination with the MOSS, in combination with some of the other studies that are out there that look at aspects of individualization, and what I've seen, some people um, can be plateaued for a very long time, especially if they're in the camp of a higher volume or a you know lower volume approach. But generally, what my approach would be, which kind of still, I think, lines up with what you're saying, Cliff, is that I would start someone on a low to moderate volume and range. And then if they plateaued, I know what the reason is, right? If we have a, a relatively high intensity, uh, but the volume isn't sufficient, I would, you know, crank that volume lever and see what happens and try to find their upper and lower bounds where they can progress, you know, periodize between those two points. But I have seen people who absolutely thrive on those lower volume approaches. And I've also seen people who try a low volume approach and literally shrink despite the fact that they're training hard. Um, so. I think it can make a very big difference for some yeah. individuals. Um, so That's with regards to my training, right, since I've got both of your ears, I like to sort of subscribe to the chaos theory. So I'm in my home gym and I'm on my exercise looking at Instagram. <laughs> You're not talking Joe Weider's muscle confusion, are you? <laughs> well, I might be. <laughs> and I'm like, what will I do today? And then I just look at someone on Instagram like Eric and go, oh, is that what Eric's doing? I might try that. And then I'll go and I'll do a version of Eric's workout, albeit not train nearly as hard. Um, and uh, because I certainly don't look the way you do when you train, um, I'm much more calm and sort of have it together. Not that you don't, but you know what I mean. Um, and then like on a Friday, I might be scrolling through Instagram and see Bella do her training, go, oh, I might do those five deadlifts that Bella just did and call that a day. So is there any merit to me with my chaos theory, like, is there any sort of metabolic advantage? Am I like, is there just no point? Because of course the message that I see on Instagram from other people that I follow is if you're not doing progressive overload, if you're not following a training protocol for 12 weeks, then don't even bother. All bearing in mind, of course, I'm not trying to be a physique athlete. I'm actually just sort of doing something to try to maintain a little bit of strength. I think there's a couple of points that I want to jump in and make. One is that done is better than perfect, right? So if the difference between someone, like novelty is really important for some people and for others, it's not. 
And if someone is being told that, hey, you should just stick to the meat and potatoes, just deadlift, bench, squat, maybe do some pulls, and that's all you should do as a beginner or novice or whatever, and they really hate that, of course it's not going to work, right? So that's where I think often we miss the the cultural, the behavioral, the psychosocial milieu around training, and that's really important. Having said that, I do think progressive overload is really important, and I think a lot of people do train relatively unintelligently. And it's not that you're doing that necessarily, Mickey, because I think you can still get progressive overload within some amount of chaos, right? Because you're still doing movement patterns. And if you're getting stronger in the patterns over time, that's progressive overload. Uh, What I tend to see as more worrying, not worrying, it's not worrying, I don't care. (laughs) But what I see as more challenging for people's long-term progress is the sort of energizer bunny mentality. Mm. I want to just go in and do like, high intensity interval training or just move around a lot, wave my arms in the air and burn a whole bunch of calories and expect for that to give the the optimal sort of long-term results. And I think in that respect, we've lost a lot of the focus on the, the real value of progressive uh, strengthening of the body. And I think strength trumps everything else when it comes to to sort of long-term outcomes. It's not to say it's the only thing that's important, but I think if we looked at it as in terms of a hierarchy of what's most effective, we would say progressive strength training is probably the most effective thing. And um, I'll leave it there, but I think as a bit of a teaser, I think that's one of the things that I see out there a lot is that exercise is ineffective for fat loss. It's all about diet. And I just don't think that's the reality because I think temporally it's it's critical and I think it's incredibly protective over the long term, especially if you haven't just been waving your arms around to, to somehow try and burn calories, but if you've actually been growing and strengthening the body. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think I think it really just comes down to the audience and the goal. Like I'm never worried about people like you, Mickey, who enjoy being physically active, like training, trying new things. And you may you may have described yourself as you know I you don't push yourself as hard as it appears that I do in my my stories, but you probably push yourself hard enough to get a decent workout, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be amazing. Like if if the if everyone did that, we would have healthcare costs that were you know a quarter of what they are currently, you know, and people would be playing with their grandkids in their eighties and 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 making it to their eighties quite regularly, you know. So, um, you know, I think, I think this really just comes down to messaging. Like if, if I was to get on my platform and, and say that, and I probably have said things like that, like, Hey, you know, program hopping is, is, is not something you want to do. Let's get away from the, the weeder confusion principle as, as, uh, as Cliff said, which is a real thing, the real bad thing for, for the audience that they were trying to communicate <laughs> to bodybuilders, you know, yes. um, and, and, you know, you, you probably want to, you know, stick with something until you know it is no longer working and then, and then shift. I would say that knowing that my audience is... Sorry, my, my muscles were confused. Yeah, I, they're like, what is going on? Yeah. So I'm saying that because, you know, my audience are primarily people who are trying to get unreasonable levels of, of muscle mass and strength, you know, or, or competitive levels. And, um, but yeah, I think if I was, you know... Mr. Health Guy, which which I'm not. I'm I'm like I, I am very interested in people having a long term, sustainable, uh, enjoyable career in strength and physique sport. But it's still strength and physique sport, you know. Yeah. So, so I think, um, like it, it's just it's it, to me it's just an audience question, um, mm. and I think it's actually difficult for someone in the general population 
to get a negative effect from, you know, like, like just kind of switching it up and following people all the time. But if someone was like, hey, I actually, I'd really like to enhance my fitness, I wouldn't advise to them to randomly select things based upon what's on their feed and then give it a, you know, half-assed effort. Like that wouldn't be the optimal approach, but <laughs> it, it all depends on like, you know, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And I do think yeah. the most important thing is they should be enjoying it. And presumably, strength and physique athletes, uh, they like doing strength and physique things. And their, their primary yeah. goal is progress rather than, you know, finding something that, that, that has a lot of novelty on a day-to-day basis. That said, I have run into many strength and physique athletes who do like novelty. And that's something you take into account because it can drive their motivation. But you need to have certain things in place that, that uh, enable that uh, monitoring of progress. Mm. And that's, I think, with the, the longevity aspect, and I'm not talking about, you know, longevity in terms of the way most people talk about it, but in, in terms of having that health, healthgevity, if you will, you know, that quality of life through the health span, I do wonder, especially as I'm now, you know, Middle-aged. I'd say well into my 40s. I'm not really well into my 40s, but I'm, yeah, I'm middle-aged, you know, mid-40s kind of thing. And, um, you know, especially coming back to a bit of competition now, I do find it interesting, the idea that when we're young, we move a lot in different planes and we're very, you know, assuming we're active, we're typically very, we have very good structural integrity, you know, and posture and mobility through ranges of motion and things. Uh, I wonder if as strength athletes, we do pattern ourselves a little bit to, to not move so well in those planes and there could be some sort of postural and structural breakdown over time you know we certainly see a lot of uh strength athletes who who do suffer as they get older with a, a lot of those sort of chronic degenerative type joint conditions and things so part of me also looks at that and while i think that if you did just the meat and potatoes and you focused on strength through a full range of motion i think it would take care of most things i do think there are certain movement patterns that are a little bit lacking and because of that, I do think that a lot of people just don't move enough. Mm. You know, it doesn't need to be a huge amount, but they don't move enough in terms of residual activity, walking around, just getting up and moving through the day, and especially moving in those different patterns like lateral movement, which is very lacking in strength sports. There's data on that that would support what you're saying, at least broadly. You know, Cliff, there was a, oh, I want to say a 2019 meta-analysis. I'm not going to remember the author, so I guess just telling someone the year won't, won't help either. But um, what they did was they instead of looking at uh, activity as a one-factor variable, they broke up sedentary time as well as activity. And yeah. when you looked at the people who had the, the I think the, the tertiles, the highest tertile of high-intensity activity, um, there was still a negative effect of being in the moderate and higher tertile of sedentary behavior. So I think this is something that's more and more common. And that I see a lot, especially as an online physique, athlete coach because you know the people i'm working with are going to be internet biased i guess i mean that's almost just not even a thing in 2022 if everyone's on the internet but um (laughs) a lot of people are essentially and we've seen this with covid as well working from home not not if they if they go somewhere they're driving and they generally like they struggle to get five thousand steps a day but they work out five times a week um and I notice in myself when I've been like that, as well as in my athletes, things just don't respond as well. They're more injury prone. They're less happy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're more likely to, to catch ill. So uh, the all-cause all mortality data in that meta-analysis would suggest the same thing. Um, 
And we've got a lot of data on the independent effect of just sedentary time now. Um, there was even a observational, so limited data, but there's an observational uh, study where they looked at athletes, so com- like competing athletes and, and like real athletes, not strength and physique athletes. People are like doing training with aerobic and anaerobic work and, you know, multidimensional movements through space um, practices and, and things like that. And those who reported like more screen time and more sedentary time tended to have slightly higher uh, body fat levels and mm. were slightly less, I think they are, their stress levels were a little higher. Uh, and there were a number of markers that, that indicated they, you could argue their, their overall health was, was less. So I think um, that's something that's important is that activity and exercise, especially high intensity exercise, are not the same thing. And uh, the, the way to conceptualize it, I think, is the more time spent being sedentary, there's actually a, a somewhat independent signal there. And then the amount of activity, do there's a signal there. And of course, they have, they're affecting the same outputs, you know, health, uh, and, but, but they are actually independent signals. So the way you would probably get the best of both worlds is trying to get kind of a minimum baseline of activity to actually re- like remove risk, which from what I've yeah. seen, it's like even if just getting like 7,000 steps a day for most yeah. people is going to. You know, be, be well, and they're also interdependent, right? Because let's say you're currently not getting in that seven and a half thousand steps a day, and instead you're sitting on your phone. It may well be that that's sort of pushing you over that threshold. And I think from memory, it's around three and a half hours. They've sort of indicated in the research as a possible sort of threshold for online sort of use in a day before it starts negatively affecting other outcomes. Sure. But then, of course, that's interrelated with sleep. Um, you know, sleep is obviously affected by nutrition, but it has a massive interplay with nutrition as well. If we don't sleep well, we tend to snack more the following day. We tend to make poorer choices with our snacks. You know, our food control is uh, more greatly affected, all that kind of stuff. And so um, I think there's probably a substitution effect as well as the, the independent effect of, of activity and movement. Yeah, absolutely. We are operating within a finite 24 hours per day. So there's no way them not to impact each other. So no, I totally agree. I think, um, you do. You would behoove yourself to consider kind of the long-term athlete development model, if you will, applied to even strength and physique sport athletes of kind of having a, a base uh, and then only becoming more specific. And but maybe thinking of that almost more holistically throughout the whole lifespan of the athlete. Um, you know, the funny a funny anecdote is when I was focusing on trying to in the same year do a strongman comp, a uh, a weightlifting comp, and a powerlifting comp. And I was doing a lot of like just a lot of variation in my training. I was the most beat up, but I also felt the most bulletproof. If that makes sense. Mm. I'm interesting on that um, uh, the accrual of steps and just general sort of non-exercise activity. Do you guys see in your with the people you work with that? people overestimate the amount that they move every day. You know, if you're working with people and they've sort of stalled with regards to weight loss and that's one of their primary sort of goals and then you dig a little deeper and they're like, no, I'm super active because I do X, Y, Z in terms of my training. But when you do sort of a bit of an audit, if you like, on energy, and I heard someone talk about this on the Stronger by Science podcast a couple of weeks ago, it actually... They're knowing they've completely overestimated the um, uh, the amount of things that they do on a day by day basis. They're sort of, I'm not going to say delusional, but just exactly that. They just equate active with their one structured activity and don't even think about everything else in the rest of the day. 
I, I think is what, what I see a lot is people, when I ask them, you know, do you exercise? Just as a very general question, it's like, yeah, yeah I, I walk the dog every day. And I sort of think, well, that, that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm really stoked that someone's doing that because that's probably providing a bit of that foundation of residual movement. And it's obviously good for a whole bunch of reasons, particularly if they're going out to a park or in the bush or whatever, you know, that, that sort of green spaces idea. Um, and being with a dog outside is a great thing for mental health anyway. So there's all those benefits, but it's it's not really, you know, exercise in the same way that I think we would usually think about exercise targeted towards progressive outcomes. Because, you know, let's say if I go for a walk around the block with a dog, I might have done two or 3,000 steps. Mm. And I sit at home a lot in front of a computer. So I probably, if I didn't do anything else, I'd probably only do about 2,000 steps. So still, even though I think I'm exercising, I'm probably getting like four or 5,000 steps, you know, which is, it's just not anywhere near enough. And there's also no progression there. There's no overload. There's no sort of strengthening of the body. There's none of that uh, element. Plus as well, I think people then drastically overestimate the effect of that in terms of like energy balance. Mm. I went for a walk, so I obviously burned a lot of calories and they didn't really. Um, so therefore, even if it's implicit or, or subconscious, they think, well, I've got a little bit more freedom as well now. Yeah. Yeah. We, and there's, there's actually a, a lot of different lines of evidence that, that tie to this, Mickey. There's, um, there's the first one that just suggests that people are generally a little too, I wouldn't say delusional, but optimistic about okay. uh, yeah. the amount of That's calories nice, in food. Uh, yeah, because I don't think they're actually trying to delude themselves. Um, I think they're too optimistic about the, the calories in food. They think it's lower than that actually is, or they just forget some of the shit they ate in a day. Uh, but there is data to suggest that on average, and, and there's a lot of variation, that someone generally thinks calories, especially when they eat out, are about half of what they actually are. Mm-hmm. But more than that is that the the very reductionist kind of additive model of thinking about the calories burned in this hour and, you know, normally I eat this much and therefore that's an additional expenditure is, has a lot of issues with it. So for, for one, sometimes it's just a math error. Like if mm. you think, oh, I burn, I burn, let's say you're accurate and you said I burned 300 calories in this hour of, of, of training, which is not an unreasonable uh, thing for an average weight person. Um, you're then thinking, oh, I normally burn 2,000 calories a day, so today I burned 2,300. Mm. And you kind of have to go hold the phone what do you do you normally you do, do you do you have 23 hours in a day or 24 and they're like what do you mean i'm like yeah. so that i usually did while you're yeah exactly <laughs> yes. so like yeah. that hour you normally burn calories and they're like well what are you normally doing around that time I'm like oh like housework like okay so you're normally actually burning 100 calories so it's really only an additional 200 right yeah that's a really good point yeah. so that's that's yeah. the first misstep but there's like three more the next, the next misstep, which is unfortunate, is that um, as you push activity levels higher, we see compensations in other areas. So this is that constrained energy model. But more accurately, is somewhere between, depending on the individual and how high you try to push activity, maybe between 50 to 75% of the energy you expend uh, from exercise activity uh, or even non-exercise activity uh, will... We'll, actually count and be additive towards it and the more you do the more it starts to kind of curve and then mm. start to flatten out um and then finally uh there is also data to suggest that the, and this is dif- differs between individuals um that the natural state of things unless you're controlling calorie intake is that energy intake and energy expenditure are coupled which is a good and a bad thing so when you are sedentary uh there is this uncoupling effect and this has been known for a long time there's a 
classic study on Bengali mill workers where you see the same energy intake between the most active office workers, sorry, the most active factory workers and the office managers who are sedentary. So they just weighed more, right? Uh, but then you look at every step down in terms of the, the people who are active, but to various degrees in the factory, they had a coupling between energy expenditure and energy intake and a similar mean body weight, right? So once you, it's a great, great thing to start coupling your energy intake. You might lose a little bit of body weight initially and then plateau if you're currently sedentary because you're, you're having this uh, dysregulated satiety, if you will, and overeating a little bit, which might be part of the reason why someone might be higher in body mass. Uh, so once you start being active, that gets re-regulated, you stop overeating, and at the very worst case scenario, it is um, halting weight gain, which is actually a great mm. thing in, in, mm. in the modern environment. Um, so that's sometimes the, the myopic view of exercise does nothing, I think is quite uh, overstated. It's too energetic of a focus rather than this homeostatic regulatory uh, you know, metabolic benefit that I think is, is, is clearer. So anyway... Um, you're, you're not burning as many calories as you think for mathematical reasons because you're just adding it up wrong. Uh, you're, you're potentially not adding all those calories to your day because there's compensations. And then if you're doing enough activity, great news, you're now coupling your energy intake with energy expenditure. But that means that if you do more activity, you're probably just going to eat more. So unless you're also actively trying to control calorie intake or making more satiating decisions with your food intake, um, cardio just doesn't give the same kind of food. For most people uh, that, that they would expect, which can be mm. quite depressing if you don't understand that, which is why those energy audits are so important. Mm. Yeah, no, great points. Cliff, anything? Oh, no, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's, yeah. you know, that, that idea that, well, one thing I would, would say, though, is I think one area that we've sort of investigated in the past, or, or that Eric and I at least have discussed quite a lot, is this idea that I don't know whether I came up with it or not, but I, I tend to talk about it more than anyone else I, I hear around. Uh, and that's that auto-regulation of energy intake. Mm. So based on a almost a more qualitative approach to our food, if we're eating, you know, rather than hyperpalatable, ultra-refined foods, if we're sticking more with the less refined foods, if we're having enough protein, if we're taking sort of a slightly modular approach to our meal planning, we tend to have an auto-regulation effect where we it's very difficult to overeat. And so I would imagine that that coupling of energy intake, where obviously if we're more active, we're going to desire more food. If we're in a good food environment that has a lack of those hyperpalatable, ultra-refined foods, it's likely that it will kind of work out. I think the thing that gets in the way for us in the modern world is we obviously have a desire for more food. And I think just on a biochemical basis, we're going to go for those foods that are most dense in calories, that have a combination of, you know, the, the pleasure points, sugar, salt, fat, all together. You know, it makes sense if we're active in a natural environment, we would want those foods. Mm. So I think there is a mitigating effect when we really focus on the, the quality aspect of nutrition as a, a bit of a foundation, not the only thing, but a foundation. Mm. 100% agree. Yeah, no, nice. and. With regards to that sort of constrained energy model, what I also see a lot on my Instagram feed are two things. One is um, more and more people are talking about this so-called metabolic adaptation. And I think, Eric, with what you've, how you've just sort of talked through where people get it a bit wrong in terms of the energy audit, I think it's, 
you know, it's debatable whether there is an adaptation or more just a, a misunderstanding or a sort of miscalculation. On the flip side, though, in order to get out of a metabolic adaptation, to get away from chronically low calories and, and help sort of restore some um, of that potential um, uh, or restore metabolism, there's that whole concept of reverse dieting. And it's something which I have seen a lot in the um, physique world. And Eric, you and I spoke of it when you came on maybe about a year ago, we talked about it. But more and more, just your general, every sort of day person is saying, oh, I've been on chronically low calories for so long. My metabolism is, brink- is broken. I'm going to reverse diet myself out of this so I can enjoy this, you know, 3,000 calories a day and still effortlessly lose weight. Because, of course, all you see in that space are those people that are have some magic, magically, they've, this is sort of the space you're in. Um. Is it a magic cure? Sounds like the new keto. <laughs> I know. But is it? Is, is there something? Are, are we drawing too much of a sort of long bow here? Is that actually the reality for people who reverse diet? Like, what's your understanding of that? Like, both of you, if you've got any sort of um, um, thoughts on it, I'd love to hear it because I'm just seeing it all the time. Um, yeah. I've done it. You know, like, and I think uh, we used to try to do it with our clients, and I, and I know exactly those before and after uh, examples that you, you you look at, and they take themselves when they're in the hardest part of their diet, at their leanest and most depleted, and they post their their calorie intake and their macros, and then they post themselves after they've gained a couple kilos, but, but yeah. a lot of it is just filling out, uh, you know, water, maybe a little bit of fat gain, also some muscle regain. Uh, and the highest they get their calories at that point. And they look maybe slightly less lean, but but better overall qualitatively. And oftentimes they're smiling in one, not the other, the lighting, all the standard 1990s EAS, like Bill Phillips before and after tricks that have been around since the dawn of photography. I love any reference to Bill Phillips, actually, to be fair. (laughs) You got to, right? Yeah. So, I mean... And and they are definitely positioning something. It's it's a it's a post to convince, right? Mm. Um, and you look at it maybe one's eighteen hundred calories and the one's three thousand calories, right? Yeah. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Um, but it actually all makes a lot of sense. They were in a five hundred calorie deficit at a lighter body weight on the left, and they're in a slight surplus at a slightly higher body weight on the right, and yeah. they are in a uh, adapted state in both cases. Mm. Um, one is they are well, sometimes, sometimes the, the degree to, to which that has occurred is debatable. If they're still really lean on, on the other picture, it might just be a less adapted state. Um, but it is not uncommon at all. So like, for example, for a bodybuilder to be at the, at the end of the off season, before they start their diet, um, they're in a slight surplus trying to gain muscle mass and they're, let's say 15 kilos heavier than they're going to be on stage. The disparity between their highest, the calories get. In the off-season, versus the lowest they get, even with a non-extreme approach, relatively for bodybuilding, there's kind of no such thing, but what you need to do to get in shape could be a 2,000-calorie difference in the same person. And that sounds wild because it's mm. like, but I'm still me. But it's like, yeah, but you weigh 15 kilos less, yeah. and you're in a massive yeah. deficit, and you're pushing your body to the extremes of adaptive thermogenesis, which is the uh, probably more accurate terminology for metabolic adaptation. Uh, at least so people don't think of the same colloquial messages that are a little uh, misconstrued and like Instagram, for example. 
So we definitely have, like metabolic adaptation is a real thing. And the simplest definition is simply that your uh, calculated energy expenditure for your body mass is lower or higher than anticipated mm. uh, for reasons that are not explained by changes in body mass. Okay. Right? If, and if we simply look at it that way, um, then we can understand that, that this could come from, you know, adaptations in various compartments of PDP, total daily energy okay. expenditure. Mm-hmm. So whether someone is actually experiencing, um, you know, down regulations in their basal metabolic rate, probably not. And if it is to a small degree, but this marries up quite nicely with the constrained energy model. And it marries quite, quite nicely even more when you then start thinking about low energy availability and rents, relative energy deficiency and sport. And those are all the same concept. They're just different research groups, different research backgrounds, kind of looking mm. at the same elephant, you know, and feeling it. And they're, you know, kind of the, the bl- that, that old parable of the blind person, uh, you know, trying to describe an elephant and getting something a little different. You know, in the REDS research, they're more concerned with the negative effects on health, like the female athlete triad, uh, decrements in performance, frequency of illness, um, rather than necessarily the energetics. Mm. In the metabolic adaptation and obesity research world, they're more focused on the energetics and how does that impact uh, likelihood of success and how long will a weight-reduced person have a depressed energy expenditure. Then the energy model, they're more interested in what's the interplay between NEAT and exercise activity and total daily energy expenditure and how do we explain why it is constrained and it's not a purely additive model. Um, kind of the Ponser research, right? Mm. And, you know, when you're comparing the, the Hadza, who is, you know, a hunter-gatherer tribe to a Western uh, culture, you're also comparing someone with severe metabolic adaptation who's really lean doing a high level of activity. It's, it's actually quite similar to your athlete with reds, when mm. you think about it. Your hypogonadal male hunter-gatherer, you know, it's kind of the natural state until you, you have a post-agricultural society with more, much more readily available food. Mm is that your body's going to be doing what it can to conserve energy, which yeah. makes sense. And it's a positive adaptation. It's not, quote-unquote, yeah. metabolic adap- uh, damage or something like that. Uh, and it is also transient. And the one thing that reverse dieting gets right is really the only way to fix that eat is to eat more and, or, or potentially burn less calories if you're someone who's doing a ton of uh, exercise. But there are, of course, bounds to that. Mm. And um, if you're always in the, in the mindset of, well, I need to eat more so I eventually I can eat less so I can finally get the body of my dreams. Like that's kind of just, that's really just a, a mild form of extended bulimia and cyclical dieting. And it's often driven by yeah. negative things. Yeah. Um, and I think we often look to the bodybuilding world, the competitive bodybuilding world, because they should be the, the masters of knowing what they need to do to improve body composition. And I don't want to look like that, but I'd like to look maybe 10% like that. I often hear that from people who are interested in bodybuilding for the information but i think people forget that bodybuilders are forced into cyclical dieting by the nature of the sport are in season for example i'm six feet tall Mm -hmm. and i'm currently right now 94 kilos in the off season Mm -hmm. i have to get down to 80 kilos to get on stage and no one would look at me right now and go oh man you could lose 14 kilos (laughs) if i told them i had to lose 14 kilos and they looked at me naked they'd be like so are you getting anything amputated you know like I'm not, not like super shredded or anything like that, but I'm athletically, you know, uh, lean right now. And just the extremities of how lean you have to get and the adaptations you go through and how negative of a hormonal and mental and physical environment that is at the end, it's completely non-conducive to gaining muscle. So 
the natural response mm. and actually the intelligent response is to get out of that state, refeed, regain body weight. And then if you want to compete back to back years, you've got, you know, a year before you have to start dieting again. And mm. that year is spent recovering from the trauma of prep that you've done to your body and then hopefully trying to put on new muscle tissue. Mm. So it needs to look like this cyclical process of, of cutting and bulking, cutting and bulking. But that's probably not the way, not even probably, it's definitely not the way that the average person should approach their body composition goals. It should be a much less extreme version of that. Like, sure, you want to be in a surplus if you're going through a muscle gaining phase. And if you need to, therefore, clean up a little bit, you need to be at a deficit. But the, the length of those, the severity of them, the frequency of them should be much more tailored to the individual and ensuring that mental health sustainability is in play and that you're not trying to get too lean. Mm. That you're not, you know, following the seafood diet. That's S E E when you're trying to bulk and all that good stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think there's good rationale too for. I mean, we see pr plenty of case examples of it, right? Of people who who don't do anything cyclical with their nutrition or, or really training. They're, they're training progressively, you know, progressively improving their strength. They're also exercising other aspects of that sort of fitness paradigm, and they eat, you know a good healthy diet that is replete in all those nutrients and they slowly gain muscle over many years they have a relatively lean you know body so they're, they're an athletic sort of shape which i think most people in the mainstream would probably aspire to and so you know do a lot of i would pose this question do, do a lot of people in the mainstream really need to worry about that next level of nuance when they're perhaps not taking care of just the consistency of training and nutritional lifestyle mm. no and just for the record i do want to say as well that currently i'm about i'm i'm not not about i'm five nine and um 92 kilos so just put that in perspective next to dr eric helms <laughs> bigger <laughs> bigger <laughs> for the first time in my life this is um this is the whole reason i came on the show. just to have better stats than me <laughs> so, so can i ask you something else then because on the flip side no <laughs> i suppose we'll just end that's it here. we're, we're that's done it. we're done yeah. here um is <laughs> i want to end it on having more muscle than eric <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know that because i i might i might be a lot fatter so <laughs> i have more mass this is not necessarily muscle we should have a live dexa next time Nikki. that should be the next podcast <laughs> is dexa accurate enough but, though but please ask your question am i right anyway um so the other thing that i see quite a lot and maybe this is always just the people that I for some reason my feed is now filled and I love it with like these um not at all pro um wannabe bodybuilders who use cutting and bulking in everyday life just as their dieting and that's just what they do they never compete um but it's all macros and reverse dieting and bulking and cutting but then on the flip side I also have a lot of people in my feed that that are absolutely adamant that low calorie diets are um, to be avoided at all costs. And if you're not losing weight on whatever calories you're following, then obviously they're too low and you need to eat more. I have so many people coming to me saying, I think I need to eat more. And actually they don't. They still actually need to eat less and maybe less than what they're eating. So I suppose, you know, what do you think about the idea? What are your thoughts on that notion that no one should be on a 1500 calorie a day diet for example um is 1500 calories too low for for everyone and and does everyone really need to eat more to i don't know lose more 
I think the last time we chatted, Mickey, I, I might have been leaning up a little bit because for the first time in my life, my waist measurement was more than half of my height. Mm. So I thought, oh, I, I've got to get that down again. And so I dieted hard for just a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. stripped off a bit of body fat, then went back to normal and everything's fine. Uh, but it was interesting because I was talking to a prospective student and he was raging about this idea that, you know, some people when they diet, they, you know, drop a thousand calories off their daily maintenance and all this kind of stuff. And I said, dude, I'm, I'm pretty much doing that. I'm eating like 1100 calories a day or something mm. right now, like a ridiculously low amount. But I had a plan. It was progressive. I was basically dropping to a very low level, you know, preserving as much protein as I could, all that kind of stuff, because I figure I had enough fat to, to burn. I think I'm a pretty good fat burner, so why not just sort of preserve nutrients, uh, micronutrients, protein, all that kind of stuff, as long as there is some return to play strategy, right? You're not just going to stay there forever. And if it, you know, if you do get to a point where you are, you know, falling, you know, into that sort of metabolic adaptation down, then there's going to be a point where you've got to start bringing it back up again because there's a point with. And here's the thing, I think with people sort of look at metabolic adaptation as being this bad thing, right? But as Eric said, this is a natural survival um, tool that we have, right? And so what that's going to mean is there is a range within which any person's um, energy intake could be at any given point. And that's fine. Like if it's a couple of hundred higher or lower, it doesn't really matter. And so I think we need to get out of the idea that there is a perfect amount of calories for anyone at any given time, because it simply doesn't matter. What matters is, are you progressing towards your goals and, and how do you feel outside of that? So I would only consider it a negative thing, the, you know, the number that we see in terms of energy intake, if it's affecting someone's hormonal balance as it could, you know, if it's affecting their quality of life in terms of fatigue, um, you know, their mental health. The, the other things we might see associated with, say, you know, reds uh, as well. And so there, there, there you're basically looking at what the functional outcomes are for that person. And if everything's going along fine, like who cares what the number says? Because there's also a lot of things that impact that that people typically don't think about because it's all about energy. So I saw um, there was an interesting study posted up in one of the groups I'm part of the other day. And it was, okay, so the, the, the conclusion of the study was basically that high protein, low carb diets reduce testosterone. Yeah. Right. So I looked into this study a little bit more. The moderate protein, low carb diets didn't do that. So I'm thinking, okay, this this looks like an artifact to me. And this is basically, from my point of view, this appears that what you're basically seeing is a proxy situation of low energy availability. Because if you have a moderate protein, low carb diet that's not resulting in that outcome, and a high protein, low carb diet that is, then what's what's going to be the difference? It's going to be the fat intake. So we're basically looking at we've got three macros, one of which we don't really use that efficiently for fuel, and the other two we do. So if you drop either of those, if you drop fat considerably or carbs considerably, you're going to see an effect on tea, right? So it's not about the protein. It's about the energy availability again. So people need to also consider that because there's going to be a a different amount of energy availability based on your, your macro split too. Sorry, that got tangential, but no, oh, that, that's that's what we're here yeah, for. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, would, I would have much less of an issue with people having these kind of arbitrary, you don't want to ever go below this calorie intake. If it was energy availability statements, which you can technically mathematically calculate as uh, your, it is your energy intake minus your exercise energy uh, activity 
divided yeah. by your kilograms of lean body mass. And if someone's like, you know what, I really don't think even for short periods, you should go below 20. I'd be like, fair enough. You know, but it's temporal but, too, right? Because who, you could not absolutely a week and it wouldn't matter. Fair enough is the best you're going to get out of me. Not like I totally wholesale agree with that because a hundred percent, there are every other day fasting protocols, right? That are fine. There are five and two diets that are fine where on those two days, you don't eat most of the time where it's like 500 calories, you know, um, it has to do with what is your current body fatness? What is your history of dieting? Have you been dieting previously? Is this a cyclic? Are you kind of in and out of 1500 calories all the goddamn time? Mm. You know, that's very different from I decided for four weeks to do a 1500 calorie week, uh, you know, diet after years of, you know, being at a normal thing. So I just want to clean up a little bit and get back to it. I see no issue with that. Yeah. Um, the effects are transient and, you know, it might not be fun, but uh, you'll be probably in most cases back to normal within a few weeks. Albeit um, leaner. Yes, it you know maybe until you regain it all, but the, the it depends on like you know what's the motivation for going into it? Why are you doing it? Are are you trying to live there because you want to stay unsustainably lean? That's the the real issue, you yeah. know, not some arbitrary energy intake. Um, if we had a message for you know like athletes who needed to sustain a high level of performance but also wanted to try to get get leaned up, versus someone like you know Cliff and I who are quote-unquote athletes it might be a little different I, like i would like for example when i when if, if i was to consult and i have occasionally which is not my main purpose but when i consult with high energy output athletes who are also trying to change body composition you're walking a much finer line mm. right because you're yeah. needing to support performance and you know not expose them to injury risk while also trying to lean up a little bit um, and you're you're leveraging a high energy output higher flux situation anyway and you wouldn't just be like oh let's get this done and dusted and lose a lot of weight So with a low energy intake. So I think the context is incredibly important here. And most of the time, the problem is not how much did, how low did your calories get during your cut? It's how frequently you're cutting. What is the motivation behind the fact that you're cutting? Um, and are you living in this kind of semi-chronically dieted state? And to go back to an earlier aspect of your question, Mickey, it's kind of like the idea of like physiologically, if you're not losing weight, you are eating, you know, too too high to be continuing to lose weight. But in the real world, what happens is someone goes on a 1500 calorie diet, or we'll just say a very low calorie diet, because they want to get leaner. Yeah. They can't sustain it. They binge eat, and they compensate for that, and they are finding themselves in this very unhealthy cycle. Um, and yeah, that's of course not ideal. And typically, it's motivated by the same things that we're seeing on Instagram unrealistic bodies who are giving partial sides of the story, societal pressures to yeah. look a certain way. Yeah. They have a history of dieting. They don't have a healthy relationship with food or their body. And and those are the problems, not the actual X's and O's of their nutrition plan for a certain phase of when they're dieting. And one thing that, um, sorry, sorry, Mike, one, one thing that I think as well, now, I'm not sure if there's a lot of strong evidence for this, but I know that it's often sort of rallied against by the ostensibly evidence-based crowd, is that I think that pattern of eating is particularly obesogenic anyway, right? If you are eating a set amount of calories every day and it's coming from foods that are nutrient replete, you know, highly satiating, all that kind of stuff, versus you're going through those periods of what amounts to starvation and binging, 
the binging is typically with foods that are we would consider to be obesogenic, but I think they are uniquely that not just because of the behavioral ramifications. Right. And why I say that is I think we can see enough indications in the research that there are these sort of states of what we might consider, you know, benevolent pseudo diabetes. But I don't think that would necessarily be benevolent if we are compensating for under eating by just loading up on a whole bunch of sugar, for example. Mm. You know, so if every three days I'm just getting past my limits and let's say I'm just that I'm at energy balance, but I'm achieving that by every three days loading up on 500 grams of sugar in a couple of sittings. I wonder, and I would suspect that that's going to be more obesogenic than if I were just consistently eating, you know, let's say a healthy diet across the board that was isocaloric. However, as well, alongside that is the, um, because what you're talking about there with that cyclic calories, like if that, if you were cycling calories, um, but were more deliberate and in fact your higher calorie intake included more nutrient rich foods, then you wouldn't be having all the, then, then you would largely mitigate that sort of obesogenic sort of environment. So I think the, the, to your point. Possibly. And I'm, I'm not saying it's a big effect. No, no. I'm saying, but I think there could be an effect, yeah. yeah. And actually, that sort of speaks to your earlier point, Cliff, about having a game plan. Like, yes, you're in this short, short-term caloric deficit, knowing that you're going to be sort of bringing yourself back to a new maintenance. But So I think that it, it, both of you have said the same thing, is that you sort of, you need that sort of recovery into a higher caloric um, intake be it after four weeks be it the diet break at the weekend or the three days out of every four that you're you know you're not alternate day fasting that kind of thing that's probably a better Mm. sort of approach yeah you will uh if you look at long-term uh quote-unquote intermittent fasting uh research and i say quote-unquote because if you're connected to the uh fitness marketing and just uh, it's probably not marketing is probably the right word. Uh, the colloquial terminology in fitness space versus the research on this intermittent fasting. People think of it as time restricted feeding, mm. which is uh, you know. But but if you look at the research, intermittent fasting encompasses a whole lot of things. Like like you mentioned, alternate day fasting, five and two diet, time restricted feeding, um, you know, chronobiological manipulations of feeding times, etc. Uh, Any time where you're comparing continuous dieting. To an approach where you are purposefully and intentionally with the plan on a specific schedule with specific criteria, manipulating cyclically your diet, you see very different long-term outcomes. Mm. You generally see positive and equivalent, on average, outcomes to uh, chronic dieting uh, with a continuous day-to-day restriction. However, when you look at uh, diet cycling, or, or I should say, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, sorry, cyclical weight regain. Mm. which is a that's not a an intervention it's an outcome mm-hmm. and an unintended, unintended one most of the time it is correlated it prospectively uh predicts weight gain and long-term higher rates of, of uh, obesity and overweight so those are two very different things and this has been known for a while that if you try to simulate a break in your diet with a diet break you don't get the same outcomes mm. you know people don't start gaining weight, you don't have the same uh, psychological reaction. And the uh, when you think about it, the, if for anyone who has dieted and they have fallen off the wagon, 
that's not something you plan for that day. It, you typically have, ideally not, but often people have a shame response to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, there, there is compensatory behavior that could even, you know, resemble bulimia that goes on with that. Um, and bulimia doesn't necessarily, just for the record, have to be uh, vomiting. Mm. It can be excessive exercise afterwards or uh, just restrictive dieting uh, to yeah. a great degree. So I think that is a very, very different animal than taking an intermittent fasting approach to to uh, either I'm not a huge fan of that for kind of general like maintenance nutrition for most people. Mm. Um, it's it's I'm not I'm not dismissing it out of hand, but I've just seen too many times that is kind of covering up some some greater issues. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would if I was to be purely research based with the kind of time frames that we have, which are typically not longer than six months, they seem to be equivalent on average to a continuous yeah. approach. Mm. Now that that's a really good point because I think it, it sort of plays into the a lot of the narrative that we see where certain things are either deified or they're trash. You know, so many times I'll see on you know, particularly strength and hypertrophy sort of forums and groups and things, this this idea that intermittent fasting sucks. Mm. Keto sucks. And I'm sort of the first to jump in there and say, well, it, it has its uses, but we've got to be clear about what that is. And as you know, you and I have discussed, Mickey, and I've been very vocal about the last couple of years, probably most of the people that come to me as clients who are currently intermittent fasting, we kind of figure out it's not appropriate for them because they end up undereating, right? So they're auto-regulating their calorie intake down too far, and that's resulting in all sorts of things, maybe IBS, maybe you know fatigue, maybe mental health challenges, whatever it happens to be, and we find when we increase their energy by adding a meal back in, great. However, the person needs to auto-regulate their energy intake down, fasting could be a great option for them, just like keto might be, or an extremely high-carb, low-fat diet that's really high in vegetable bulk, you know, which as Hall and others have shown is you know, equivalent or better than a keto diet in terms of a satiety effects and whatnot. So it's really about horses for courses. And I think that I, I know I'm saying that to two people who understand it. And I think most of your listeners, Mickey, would get that. Mm. But it still seems to be something that is is not really accepted because there is this evidence-based position, which isn't evidence-based. That's just taking kind of groupthink. It's like tribalism around what people think is evidence-based. I think it comes because it, it, it operates the a lot of the evidence-based practitioners, like myself included, operate in the bodybuilding space mm-hmm. where it is either I can conceive it as optimal or it's useless. You know, so <laughs> yeah. you show me something that requires uh, a, a different kind of effort than, than normal or what's already been established or or additional effort or that could have theoretical downsides. And it's not better. They're like the no significant difference between groups. Like, oh, look at that. Another study that showed keto wasn't better. Keto's trash. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Neither one was better. That's it. Non-significant differences between group. How is one trash? <laughs> they're equivalent. Well, they're not equivalent yeah. technically, but they're, they're at least not different in, in this variable you're talking about. And I think, um, the issue is not, the, the issue is, is, is that mindset of, of viewing things as I need the best thing rather than viewing things as potential tools in different circumstances, for mm. sure. Yeah, and we see that with a lot of things. Like, obviously, we see that with, you know, with MCTs. I know a lot of people are very derisive about MCTs. Why would you add fat to your diet? You're an idiot. Mm. It's like, well, you know, if I'm applying that with 
a post-TBI patient, I, I personally believe there's a lot of benefit there, and I think there's a lot of research to, to back that up. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the case studies I'm going to be publishing soon, because I've got into sort of publishing a few medical cases because I think they're interesting hypothesis generators. Uh, we've seen some really interesting results with post-TBI patients in sleep. Now, that there's, there's evidence to suggest that uh, from infants, where MCTs added to infant formula improves their sleep. Now, in the energy crisis in the brain that results from TBI, um, MCTs we've found clinically to be really effective for improving sleep quality, right? So we'll publish that. We might end up doing some RCTs on it. Great. We're going to add to the body of evidence. But it's just an indication that when we say something is useless, it's really myopic to do that because there, there are cases within which that might be useful, right? So long as there is evidence to support that. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, what, what we need to often consider within the realm of either clinical or performance nutrition is that I talk about this with, uh, you know, a lot of medical conferences and things. I say, when we're treating a condition, we've got to remember that we're treating a person. When we're working with an athlete, we've got to understand that they're a person who may have conditions. Mm. So there is some degree of crossover for which there are going to be different tools that we apply. Absolutely. So we've sort of touched on a few concepts, one almost entirely unrelated to the rest of the conversation, but still very interesting um, cutting and water loading for um, bodybuilding physique. But the whole idea of metabolic adaptation, where people go wrong, chaos theory isn't necessarily bad. And then using these tools for fat loss, um, but bearing in mind that those, um, that the outcomes are all sort of working in favor for the person and it's not, you know, impacting negatively on their mental health or their sort of metabolic outcome and and things like that. Guys, can we just finish up with what your practical advice would be for someone coming to you just actually for their wanting improvement in body composition, they're wanting to lose weight. Like I just am really interested to see how you, where you align and potentially if you do differ, bearing in mind that, you know, we all come at it with our own perspective and expertise and it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just different. And so for me, when I'm working with people, I take a few different approaches, but one which I'm using in my plans is the um, almost like a fasting protocol within an overall sort of um general diet approach whereby I'm using protein sparing modified fast a few times a week where they're in a fast one day they're out of the fast for a couple of days they're back in it whereas overall their sort of the baseline diet is one which is protein rich an abundance of vegetables we have diet breaks and they get to practice what it might be like to be within maintenance calories across the course of a, a general sort of period. So, you know, it's using the tools for, of protein sparing modified fast within a relatively uh, sustainable approach, if you like. What do you guys generally do? Well, first off, for, for the record, I'm not taking on like a lot of new clients. Generally, they're not just like, hey, I'm a fat loss client. They, yeah, they yeah. typically have a, a purpose or a goal. But that's not to say that I don't have a lot of experience with this. Mm. Um, so just a little bit of a caveat, I guess, but they tend to be highly individualized. So, um, you know, if, if someone comes to me and their desire is to lose fat, we're going to end up having a, an hour long conversation that is 
kind of like, am I sorry, motivational interviewing where I'm, I want, I want to fully understand what their motivation for that is and often uh, see if, not that I'm trying to manipulate them, but see how well they understand their own motivation for that as well. Um, and I also want to understand what was their background with that. Uh, how many times have they tried? Is this weight that they've tried to lose multiple times? Um, is this uh, weight that I think from a physiological perspective uh, will is it will be maintained easily or will be maintained with needing to manipulate things because they're going to be in a weight reduced state and a little bit uh, on the whole red side of things, which depending on the person, like, like I said, you know, the hunter gatherers in, in the Hazda tribe, they're, they're always in a slightly weight reduced state. It would be, so it's not like you can't live like that, but I just want to make sure the person knows what they're signing up for mm. and that they haven't repeatedly failed. To, I'll give an example of the common male goal that's based on, arbitrary numbers that are, are not helpful or useful. I want to be 10% body fat, you know? So this idea, which may or may not be actual 10% body fat, but really just has to do with a certain look. If they've attempted to accomplish that six times in a row uh, and failed each time and really just damaged their own self-efficacy um, and their health potentially, <laughs> uh, at least transiently, then the approach will be very different than someone who has a much different perspective. You know, like, you know, I've, my work got crazy for a couple of years. I've always been an athlete, but I've only been able to train a couple of days per week. And, and I've now been able to shift my workload. And my kids are now, you know, they're, they're, they're out of the house. So I have the time to work out four days a week. And I'd like to get back to, you know, 20 pounds ago. And I know I can maintain that I did for years. Mm. Like those are going to be two very different approaches, even if it's the same stats on the person physically. That's just one huge caveat. And then from there... I think I would be asking questions related to uh, what worked in the past. They don't have the information. What do they think is currently making it harder for them mm. to be where they want to be currently? Uh, and then some of the things that will be similar is we are probably going to be leveraging a sufficiently high protein intake, resistance training, uh, and then some combination of a reduction in uh, fat, carbohydrates, or calories, uh, or increasing energy expenditure. But how we get there can look very different. If yeah. someone is like, yeah, I've been tracking on Macro Factor for six months. I love it. And I love, you know, like, check out this four-page spreadsheet I have. It's amazing. Um, Those people and, exist. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like, if you've ever helped an engineer lose fat, they <laughs> yeah. love numbers. They are all about it. And that idea of, like, you know, tracking can be deleterious. It's like they, they're enjoying this process. This is yeah. their gamifying it, you know. Yeah. Um, but for other people... Um, they, maybe they feel like they need to track. Um, and sometimes you may need to do some type of an energy audit, but they've never explored, uh, approaches that should result in a lower energy intake and a net energy negative balance, uh, without actually tracking. And those folks, I think a lot more about meal structuring, environment changes. Like, hey, let's go to the grocery store together. Like, let me see what you buy. Like, do you, uh, how are your cooking skills? Do you like fruits and vegetables? Uh, and doing a lot of the stuff that Cliff talked about earlier about trying to result in a auto regulation of food intake that would result in at least an initial deficit before they then stabilize at a lower body weight. Mm. Um, trying to get people to consume. Sometimes, you know, people ask me like, hey, uh, I want to lose some weight. What should I cut out of my diet or what should I do? And my first, like if I just meet you in the hallway for, for like, five minutes and you want to clean up your diet and I'm not looking at you and you're like, Oh my God, you're already shredded or something like that. 
I would be like, try to get in five servings of fruit and five servings of vegetable a day and, and consume protein every time you sit down to eat a meal, like a lean protein source. And I, if I, I know just doing that, there's no potential downside. I haven't required them to restrict anything out of their diet. And if they're going to do that, it's going to be really challenging to maintain a high energy intake in most cases. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, go lift some weights. So, yeah, nice. So, so I guess that's not what I would do for, for everyone. But my point is, is that some people, they might be on a, here's your, you know, gram targets for fat, carbohydrates, and protein. And, you know, get out your Fitbit and we're going to track your steps, Mr. or Mrs. Engineer. Um, or it might be hey, let's create some skills and some habits in a food environment that should push you towards uh, an energy deficit that won't stress you out because maybe you're absolutely not the engineer. You know, you're an artist or, or something like that, or you really have no experience with nutrition until now. And it needs to be much more about uh, real foods, times, concepts, cooking, and, and kind of the tangible uh, experience of what it's going to be like to change my lifestyle. Yeah, nice. Thanks, Eric. And how about you, Cliff? Yeah, I mean, that resonates because obviously I'm working with people. I'm actually working with fewer people nowadays anyway. And those that I do work with, I don't tend to see just pure sort of weight or fat loss clients much at all anymore. Uh, most of the people I work with are, are fairly intractable cases. So they're complex cases looking at various autoimmune conditions predominantly, um, you know, obviously cancer patients and things like that as well. But, you know, for many of those people, again, it's not about working with a condition, it's about working with an individual. And many of them do have other comorbidities, metabolic disorder, you know, they're with obesity, things like that. Um, and also having worked a lot with people with, you know, with morbid obesity uh, in the past, I've got a fair amount of experience in this space. And I think Eric's bang on. One of the things that I think is often lacking is the, the coaching approach. So it's not just about, you know, someone comes to you with a goal. It's not just about immediately meeting that goal and trying to find solutions. It's about trying to understand why the person has that goal have them understand their why, have them understand their own process towards that goal, you know, assuming the goal is actually the correct one. You know, I've had people come to me and say, I want to run a marathon. It's like, oh, cool. Why, why do you want to do that? Well, I want to have more energy so I can, you know, hang out with my kids and be a better father and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, okay, cool. Let, let's talk about whether a marathon's the best way to get there. You're not going to be hanging and out with anybody be. if you're praying for a marathon. You'd be out there <laughs> exactly. running like 10 hours a week. Yeah. Exactly. So people will often find, again, we, we, when we don't have a goal, we, we feel that we lack direction. So often we will then want to find direction through a goal. And it's almost as if we have all these things swirling around us and we grab one. So well, I'm going to do that because it's going to give me some direction. Maybe it's not the right direction. So I think what Eric said about starting from that sort of coaching approach is really critical. From there, obviously, there are going to be different tools that could be applied to the individual because, as Eric said, some people love tracking, some don't. You know, some people want a really quantified plan, others want a more qualitative approach. Uh, but I think there are some consistencies across the board. I would tend to say for most people, well, not most people, for everybody, if they're going to have the, the best outcomes over their lifespan, uh, there needs to be some progressive resistance training. You know, there, there, there probably should be other activity around that as well, residual activity, you know, activities in different movement planes. But as a, a an absolute must-have, I think that progressive approach to resistance is, is really important. So that's something I often work with, you know, my clients on. And it could be very simple. It could be about doing a set of one set of push-ups, pull-ups, and squats every day. 
right? That, that could, it could be that simple, or it could be getting into the gym twice a week if that's all the time you have for. But you know, it is about having that as a a, a sort of a, absolute must do. Outside of that, I tend to build it up from qualitative into quantitative. So the the quality approach being really that let's look at a compendium of food that is more unrefined. And so we start to differentiate between the ultra-refined hyperpalatable foods and the unrefined foods, not in the way of it's good or bad. It's just that, hey, for most people, most of the time, they're not actually eating for sort of innate enjoyment or, or social satisfaction. They're eating through the day. And those unrefined foods can be equally pleasurable. They're just different in terms of the pleasure. You know, if I'm going out for a burger, I want to just be able to enjoy the burger without thinking, well, I'm going to have the lettuce bun and the, you know, low carb option and the no sauce and all this kind of stuff because I'm just going to enjoy it, right? But through a lot of my day, it doesn't matter. So we talk about that in terms of a quality approach uh, and then really try and set the idea around the the health environment, right? So it, all the things that we can do somewhat easily with, you know, simple tactical behavioral changes that might improve like our sleep and that might reduce our stress, you know, because all of those are going to be conducive to that auto-regulation side of things. And then in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of nutrition itself, I think, again, there's a couple of things that are going to come into that. You know, they, they become finer and finer as you go down the track. But uh, I think prioritizing protein and meals, critically important. Um, increasing vegetables. I tend to take a modular approach to to meal planning just because it gives people a mind's eye view of what a, a meal should look like. You know, and this is, even if we are going to quantify further down the track, we still talk about, well, if you, you can't quantify or if you can't track, what might a meal look like? Well, a, a good idea would be maybe one to two palm sizes of protein, mm. maybe three fist sizes of veggies, maybe one or two thumb sizes of fat, depending on what your macro split's going to look like. And then carbs obviously allocated according to the person, their activity requirements, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's getting that sort of mind's eye view of what a meal might look like. Um, and the one final thing that I often talk about, and it's not an absolute because some people thrive on snacks, but I tend to say for most people, most of the time, I think meals are better than snacks. If you snack, that's fine. But understanding that, you know, most of the research does show us that snacking behaviors tend, you know, trend towards being with overweight or obesity, just because the the snacking choices are typically poorer, uh, they're less conscious. They're more prone to other lifestyle impacts. You know, for example, when we look at sleep, it tends to have a much bigger impact on snacks rather than meals because meals are very habitual, right? We tend to create our meals in the same way most days, whereas snacks are, are much more, um, what's the sort of term? They're, they're much more elective in terms of what we do, right? So if we haven't slept enough or we're really stressed, we might tend towards the high sugar stuff rather than grabbing a carrot or a piece of jerky or whatever. So really it's about setting that health environment to allow for auto-regulation first. Hopefully that allows for a lot of these things to sort of occur and then we can quantify down the track as we need to. Yeah. No, that's awesome, guys. And I always like when I'm on the same page-ish with two gurus, and it, particularly because none of you, neither of you have said, you know, oh, I'm taking on weight loss clients. At least you know that. See, I am. So... <laughs> If we're all on the same page, they're basically going to get the same advice from me that they would get from like either of you. So well, I'm, not, I'm no guru, Mac. I 
I know a little bit about what I know, and that's about it. I can help a few people here and there. Well, that's and what being a guru is. is. I'm definitely a guru. I know more than everyone else on all things. On all things. All right. So to finish up, like any, um, is there anything that I've, you know, I just would love to hear from both of you, like what are you most excited about right now in terms of what you're learning about which could be absolutely unrelated to what we've been talking about today, which is something which I think a lot about with, you know, weight loss for the general population. So what's really spinning your wheels? Oh man, I'm, I'm keeping myself up at night thinking about how we can improve basically our, our health environment. You know, I, I think that we, we have some real challenges there and it's deeply embedded in our socio socioeconomic system. Um, mm. So sort of looking at how we can potentially impact that because, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, weight loss, we can talk about fat loss, we can talk about health in, in somewhat arbitrary terms. But, you know, we, we face a number of crises right now. We've got pandemics, we've got, you know, a, a, an obesity epidemic. Let's, you know, mm. be clear about it. We have an, an epidemic of metabolic syndrome, but more than that, we've got an epidemic of mental health challenges. We've got a real milieu of, of health things that are going on that are really not positive. Um, and outside of that, we've also got, you know, massive changes happening because of climate and geopolitical things happening in the world right now. And I think that's all part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, and so really, I'm excited about maybe just helping to steer the boat in a better direction where maybe we don't think so much about what we have um, and think a little bit more about who we really want to be and how we, how we treat each other better. Mm. That's boring. I, I'm really <laughs> interested in uh, whether training at longer muscle lengths can enhance distal hypertrophy. <laughs> so, uh... See, that, that was my beauty pageant answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm, I just want to feed the children. You, you definitely won the. Uh, your, your the virtues have all been signaled to all the yeah. people. You, you did it. So. Um, no, no. All of, I, I think that's of course. I, I agree. I mean, we've got COVID, war in Ukraine, and all, all kinds of crazy shit going on at the moment. Um, but uh, I'm just out here trying to get Jack, and then and, and and more Jack than Jack as well. Can Can I revise my answer? You no, want to be more jacked than you're Eric? stuck. No, I, I want to. I, I just want to be jacked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but in all in all seriousness, yeah, you know what? What I what I often think about is how do people have long term careers in sport and leave it feeling satisfied and accomplished? Because mm. um, I think there's a lot of people who leave it uh, because they doesn't quite feel the same way. They no longer work competitive at the level they wanted. And that was maybe the all, at a certain point became the only thing they were extracting from the sport instead of fostering a long-term relationship, finding meaning in the sport. How do people get to enter and leave sports on their own terms rather than burnout or uh, injury, things like that? So, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bodies in, in strength and physique sport and sport in general. I shouldn't mm. shouldn't throw my own people under the bus too much. So I'm I'm very interested in, in how do you foster both high performance, but also sustainable long-term careers? And uh, that's something I'm always thinking about. Yeah, awesome. That's a super cool idea. I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I'm actually co-writing a book at the moment with Darren Ellis about 
it's we're sort of working title is awesome after 40 and it's just playing with a lot of those ideas and a lot of it's sort of drawn from my perspective at least from the things I didn't do when I was younger mm. you know I, I rushed I wanted to be as strong as I could be now rather than thinking about what's going to provide for the, the foundation for strength later on and you know what's going to provide for the best health later on which would then therefore allow me to have a longer career in strength sports or just to be you know have more structural integrity at this age and not have maybe the injuries that that I've sustained and things like that so uh, I'm really interested in that idea too and it's um it's a really cool little experiment now to really be trying to to put the body back together and um enact those things now that probably should have been done at 22. Mm, nice well team as I expected um we've covered not we've covered in detail like probably a third of the Nothing. things which I sort of wanted to chat about but you're right actually now I'm thinking about it what the hell did you talk about for an hour 40 I don't know but I'm gonna have to listen back to uh to find out and I'm sure I'll be like uh I'll feel more informed for it as I always would after chatting to you thanks for your time appreciate it was a pleasure. thanks Mick thanks Eric no, it's, it's an honor thank you great to be talking to both of you Hopefully you enjoyed that and you may need to go back and jot down some notes because they shared a lot of super practical information on that in addition to just sort of allowing you to be a fly on the wall for the types of conversations that we might have every week uh, when we sit down and chat together. Next week on the podcast team, I'm really stoked to bring to you the conversation that I have with Professor Dorothy Sears. Her and I talk about her research in metabolism and breast cancer and other metabolic conditions. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or hop on to my website where in addition to the plans that I mentioned earlier, you can book me for one-on-one consultation, mickeywillardin.com. All right, team, you have a great week. Look forward to catching up with you next week. See you later.